Amen. It is good to see and be with each of you today. Um, I know I said last week we'd be getting into John 17, and I didn't intentionally deceive you. <clears throat> we are getting into John 15 today because I couldn't get out of it last Monday. Um, there is, from what we'll see, Lord willing, just a like a, a real-life continuational aspect of the instruction that Christ gave us out of Matthew 6 and Luke 11 of how we are to pray when he says, when you pray. This is the, the beauty, the intimacy of prayer that we're going to see. But to start, I want to read one of the Valley of Vision prayers as our opening prayer today. It's titled, Christ is All. I just want to think about this, meditate upon this as I read this and and pray this to the Father. O lover to the uttermost, may I read the meltings of thy heart to me in the manger of thy birth, in the garden of thy glory, in the cross of thy suffering, in the tomb of thy resurrection, in the heaven of thy intercession. Bold in this thought, I defy my adversary, tread down his temptations, resist his schemings, renounce the world, am valiant for truth. Deepen in me a sense of my holy relationship to thee as spiritual bridegroom, as Jehovah's fellow, as sinner's friend. I think of thy glory and my vileness, of thy majesty and my meanness, of thy beauty and my deformity, of thy purity and my filth, of thy righteousness and my iniquity. Thou hast loved me everlastingly, unchangeably, and may I love thee as I am loved. Thou hast given thyself for me, may I give myself to thee. Thou hast died for me, may I live to thee in every moment of my time, in every movement of my mind, in every pulse of my heart. May I never dally with the world and all its allurements, but walk by thy side, listen to thy voice, be clothed with thy graces and adorned with thy righteousness. Amen. May the Lord answer this prayer. Okay, John 15. I'm going to have to switch glasses here. Sorry, I can't read my computer with bifocals. So, welcome. John 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 16, but we're only going to focus for the next week or two or three on 9 through 16, but I want to read the full context here. John 15. The Word of God says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they, are, they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. 
if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you, give to you. And we, we looked, as you know, at Christ's instruction on how to pray in Matthew 6 and 11, the, the matter, the method of our prayer, Though it was very concise, it, we, there was a very comprehensive look into how the, the true believer ought to pray to the Heavenly Father in faith, under the sovereignty of God, the, the, with the full assurance of the fatherhood of God, in seeking his kingdom and, and aligning our wills with his will. And, and with all this, of course, in the great help of the Spirit himself, But in light of this, I want to consider Christ's further revelation here in our relationship and communion with him in John 15 and how this is really the foundation of our time in private prayer and communion with him. And we can see and discover from from this great narrative in John's gospel that Jesus is set forth in, in what was before in many types and shadows we now see perfectly fulfilled fully fully embodied in Christ himself. Chapter 2, he is seen as the true temple. Um, chapter 4, he's the true water. Chapter 6, he's the true bread. In, in chapter 10, he's the good shepherd. And he is the life that resurrects men from the dead in chapter 11. This, this is our Savior in the beauty and the glory of his kingdom come into this world, into our lives because in him all the shadows of the Old Testament disappear and are found in the, the true light of his very substance. Just thinking back on Colossians 2.17, that, that the substance of all the things that were a mere shadow now belong fully to Christ. So John sets forth in this gospel the beauty, the, the intimacy, the great love between the Father and the Son, and we see this in what's called his farewell address in John 13 through 17, okay? And in this, we see really the, the paradigm, the, the parallel pattern for the relationship between Jesus and his own disciples. Remember these five chapters, the context is, is that in these five chapters I talked about, 13 to 17, the context here now from 14 on, is with the 11. Judas has been sent out, okay? Keep that in mind, because we're going to talk on that later. But chapter 15 itself, then, is very profound, and, and it's an extended metaphor. It, it's, it's not a, a, a... Sorry, I lost my train of thought. In light of the other two chapters, 13 and 14, which are also part of his farewell discourse which I said carries on through chapter 17. This and this specific chapter is for us his Christ's own direct description of his life that is found in true believers, in his disciples. And he's going to unfold and really describe very simple terms, but very profound, the richness of this eternal life. And we're going to see how necessary our abiding in the Savior is as he describes it in what's called vit- viticultural aspects and the vine, the branches. And we're seeing in this, too, our, our fruitfulness as the goal of our discipleship and how this abiding ties fruitfulness directly to prayer, our prayer with the Father through Christ. So today, we're going to look at several verses from John 15. I told you we're going to focus mainly on 9 through 16. But these, as I said, these are presented to us as a parable, uh, or excuse me, yeah, they are, are not presented as a parable, but as a narrative to us, just like what we read in the other, the synoptic gospels. There, there's no story or plot. These are direct words from Christ himself to the disciples that are also very transcendent to us as well today. 
So, in the first part of this, as you probably noted, talking about vine, vine dresser, husbandman, branches, this is all the, the viticultural, talking about how, how, you, how the vineyard actually functions, the care of it. And as we are the branches and, and we're commanded by Christ to abide in the true vine. But these images, this, these viticultural images only go so far in their, in their expression and in, in practical imagery. The heart of this very profound and compelling passage of 1 to 16 is found in verses 4 and 5 where he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is not only a spiritual nothing. This is apart from Christ. We wouldn't exist. There would be no physical manifestation of our bodies. There would be no soul encompassed or or found in our bodies. He right now sustains the very electronic, molecular, physical structures of this podium, as well as each and every one of us, all his creation. So apart from him, we would not only not function, we would not even exist and what this implicates is that the union with Christ is, is so engaging, so very vital for us, especially as believers in him, as professing disciples in him. And, and it stands at the heart of our own spiritual life and growth and is so very critical to our fruit bearing, what we're going to look at. Christ says we cannot bear fruit ourselves. We must abide in the true vine because apart from him, the, the true realities of what it means for us to have and to know and experience what he calls eternal life of knowing the Father and him whom he sent, we could do nothing. We would not share in this. And this is the heart of this text, and I, and I pray it will, it will be transforming and shaping our, our very heart posture and stir our love for him to go to him in prayer. So there's some questions that come out of the first part, verses 1 to 8. Do we understand what kind of fruit we're to bear? I'm not, you don't have to answer. You can if you want, if you want to make a comment. I'm just proposing these as they, they came to mind. Do we know of and experience the prayer promises that are found in verses 7 and 8? And, and what does this abiding or remaining in Christ really mean to us? What does that look like? How are these branches said to be in the vine yet fruitless? And how are they cut off and then destroyed? And Christ will exposit these for us. All verses 1 to 8 are actually exposited for us in 9 to 16. So truly, thank you, Lord, for doing this for us because this helps us tremendously. Because if we were left with the verses 1 to 8, I think we would be somewhat perplexed, somewhat concerned that, what am I going to do to keep from being broken off and burned? What does this mean for me? Okay. He answers these, and we will get to those. Probably not all the way through today. But these are, we're going to hit this in five points, Lord willing. We'll probably make it through the first one today. But first, there is a question that stands behind all of these questions. And if we understand and answer this one question, it will help bring all these other ones into place. This is what we're going to see in 9 to 16. The question is, verses 9 to 16 in this, in this pericope deals with is, what is the nature of this very necessary and radical intimacy between Jesus and his disciple? Notice I said disciple. It, it must start there before it can include all of us, Okay between this true vine and the branch that we are. And the Lord really reveals for us, he will show us what it is to abide in him, what it is to bear fruit, what it is a great privilege and honor to be in the true vine. And that the culmination of this in both of these sections, verses 7 and 16, are the vital promises to us concerning our prayer. 
this will actually guide us and help us in our prayer and our time of, of intimacy and communion with Christ. All right. So first point we're going to get to today, the parallels of intimacy that we see. And this is between this intimacy between Jesus and his disciples is paralleled not in fullest, broadest of context in every aspect, but paralleled in some ways by Jesus' intimacy with his own Father. And within this intimacy that is paralleled between Jesus and his Father, there are three prevalent characteristics I want to go into. Just as Jesus is the object of the Father's love, so is the true believer the direct object of Jesus' love. This simple statement, but very profound, think about this. The Trinitarian love that we see expressed in John 1.1, we read about through all of Scripture how the love for the Father, love for the Son, the three persons in the triune God, how great and intimate and perfect and eternal that love is. That same love is directed to the disciple in Christ. Unceasing, unwavering, unblemished, perfect in every way, caring, concerning in every aspect. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. There's no change of it. There's no diminishing of it, no altering that same love of God that was declared from eternities and set upon us has never faded, never changed. It never will. And that's the same love that Christ gives to us. Later in John's Gospel in 1724, he explicitly says that the Father has loved him from before the creation of the world. And also Paul implicates this in Romans 8.32, where he infers the Father's eternal love for the Son and giving up him for us all. Love fully demonstrated in the best gift in giving the Son that he loves. But we can't think that this love is only restricted to the Lord's pre-incarnate state, okay? It, it's clearly spoken of in, in from the heavens in Mark 1 and Mark 9, where the Father says, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And now in this passage, we as his adopted children hear these eternally grounded words for those who are in him. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Same love, same way of loving, intimate in its character, its fullness, its richness. And earlier in in this farewell discourse in John 14, the Lord reveals to us that our salvation only comes from the Lord's desire to please his Father. And now he tells us directly in the depth of this love work to us speaks volumes of that eternal aspect of his love for us. And included and and really intended with this love is that this mediatorial expression from the Father to us as well. And we'll get to that more in John 17, Lord willing, but that the Father loves us as he has loved the Son. This is Christ's words himself of his own Father, now our Father, to us. We can rest assured in this. If you are a professing believer, trusting in Christ, if you are abiding in the vine, we're going to get into that next. But in this imagery of viticulture, this, this intentional, careful, loving, caretaking work that the vine dresser, also called the husbandman, what we see in the fatherhood of God, how he cherishes and cares for the vine itself, but they also that this true vine, how it reaches to the extents of the father's vineyard with many branches. I mean, we're, we're, quite the branching cluster here today off the vine, you know. But all very meticulously and lovingly tended to, yes, also pruned. That's where our discipline comes in when it's necessary. But from this true vine is the lifeblood. This is that holy divine sap, if you will, the grace of God that provides also the grace and the means of grace given to us with the intention to bear fruit in the disciples. We are not just to be branches with leaves. 
we are to be bearing fruit. And this is here where we see the image of the, of the mediator Christ between the husbandman of the father and the branch chosen and placed in the vine. So we see that just as Christ is the object of the father's love, so in the same way the true believer, the branch and the vine, and note this positional reality we have, we are the object now of the father's love. And I'm intentionally using the words true believer for a purpose that we're going to see here in a little bit. So point two, B. Just as Jesus remains in his Father's love by means of obedience, so for us as believers in Christ, we must remain in Jesus' love by means of obedience. Just as Jesus remains in his Father's love by means of obedience, So for us as believers in Christ, we must remain in Jesus' love by means of obedience. John 15, 9b through 10 says, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And we've seen that Christ is truly the object of the Father's love, fully demonstrated. But we never, we never see, we never read, we never hear where Christ in his incarnation ever rested on his laurels, meaning he, he didn't just sit back and soak and bask in the love of the Father, being oblivious or indifferent toward any particular responsibilities that this blessed employment that his Father's love brought to him. Love had a definite purpose, a divine purpose. But rather, our Lord remains. He, he abides in his Father's love as fully human, being the God-man. And he does this by means of obedience to all that the Father has commanded him. The Father is, is with him because he is always pleasing the Father. One of, one of many testimonies is John eight twenty nine, where he says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Any thoughts on any of this so far? I know I'm kind of not intentionally going fast. Slow me down. I get excited about this. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, my question is, this indicates basically in order to prove our, that we are disciples, we will bear fruit, and in, in which case that comes in the form of obeying his commandments. Right on track. And is there anything particular about the fruit that, like, we would observe in each other that we notice? Like, when it says to obey his commandments, what all is that? We're tracking, but hold on. Yeah. <laughs> I promise you we will get to that. So very simply, anybody else? Good? Okay. Everybody hear that thought and keep, and keep tracking with us. Very simply put, but very profound for us to live out. This submission of Christ and obedience of Christ to his Father is a model for us that we must imitate and obey. Remember, Christ, he himself... He had to learn obedience, right? How did he learn obedience? Through his suffering, exactly. Suffering's just like ours, actually beyond what we would actually ever suffer. He was never in a bubble. He was never isolated, specially protected because of his deity. He suffered the full extent, full onslaught of temptation directly in the face of Satan. Okay? He felt what we felt. He's been tested, and he knows what it is to obey commands that were given to him. He's not distanced from this. He knows exactly where we are in this, okay? And earlier, John 14, 15, Jesus said that if you love me, you will what? Right. Obey what I command, meaning for us that the reality of any disciple's profound love for Christ will be proved out by his or her obedience to the Lord. But now, Christ is saying that his disciples' obedience is not presented as the evidence of their love, okay, but as the means for remaining in or abiding in his love. But we need to be careful here to note what this text does not say, okay? Jesus is not telling us that our obedience will somehow earn his love, Right? 
Okay. And neither is his love so so gloomy or tight-fisted that we have to wrestle it from him, that we have to perform some type of moral bribery to get it out of him. We know that in John ten eleven we are loved in such a demonstrative way because we see him laying down his life for his friends in obedience to his father's command. This is love expressed and demonstrated. But thinking about this some more, I was just considering other passages and, and keeping ourselves in the love of Christ. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Baptized believers, as far as we know, right? Professing believers. Why were they killed? Why did they die? Boom. Deceived, yeah, deceived the Holy Spirit. Um, They did not remain in Jesus' love. But it was not their death that proved they were not in his love, though. Acts 7, Stephen was also killed as a martyr. Was he in the love of Christ? Absolutely. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about those in the Corinthians church who approached the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Some were ill, some even died. They did not remain in the love of Christ. God's commands are very direct, specific, intentional. Second John 9, John tells the professing believers who run on ahead and don't remain in the teaching of Christ. John says they don't have God. Not, in, not even, not only not in his love, they don't even have God. Not too many knots. They were not in God's love. They didn't even have God. But, but what we have to consider here in these and, and other passages that treat the love of God and talk about the love of Christ is that there is a broad spectrum of ideas associated with God's love. And this spectrum will change depending on the scriptural context, okay? Not man's reasoning or perspective of it, but the scriptural context aspects, the spectrum will change. Because scripture tells us clearly God's wrath is on all men due to his holy nature and man's evil sin. But it also insists on God's love and sending his son and inviting these same sinful men to believe in him. And we also see in a very, in a, a much narrower sense when God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, choosing David over Saul, um, a particular people, even the nation of Israel, for the praise of his glory and his grace. So we have to be careful in transferring associations of God's love from one passage on God's love to another. And, and or to disallow those of another passage. But here in John 15, Jesus is clearly talking about his love for his disciples, for the true believers. Not how they became his disciples, but for those who are in Christ. Because if anyone is his true disciple already, being one intimate with Jesus will entail certain responsibilities. And, and to begin with, it requires our obedience And our obedience ensures that we will remain in Jesus' love. Just as we we saw earlier in the vine metaphor in verses 1 to 8, no branch can bear fruit unless it remains in the vine. It will not bear fruit. And if there is no abiding, no growth, no fruit ever seen, it's cut off and burned. There is either life in abiding or no life and no fruit. It's merely a profession at that point. It's I've got my salvific ticket. I can go do whatever I want. That's not being a disciple of Christ. That's a false profession. And this is how Christ explains this metaphor for us in terms of our discipleship. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This, this has an overtime aspect, a growing, a proving, a maturing, a growth in there. So the question we have to stare at square in the face here is, can true believers lose their salvation? Can a true believer lose their salvation? Can a person be a branch in the vine and subsequently be cast off and destroyed? 
critical, important question, but it is important for those. It is this is a question that's important for those who have and hold to a high view of Scripture, okay? Who believe that that the statements of Scripture can be reconciled with one another, okay? Scripture interpreting Scripture, reconciling Scripture. We can't think one book teaches one thing and another book teaches something else in regards to salvation. Yes, brother. You're reading my notes, bro. <laughs> but no, you're right. You're right on it. He did miracles. He was sent out with us. He saw Christ face to face. He he ate and drank with him. He heard him. What happened? Yeah, yeah. Think, think, think about, think about the parable of the four soils. Okay, the there was one good soil, right? And that that one seed was planted. It grew forth. It did what? Some hundred, some sixty, some thirtyfold. It it bore fruit. There was evidence of fruit. Evidence being the operative word. That that the evidence is what we can see, because. We can't know ontologically what's going on in your heart. Only the Father knows. But we can know in a, in a way we can say phenomenolo- phenomenologically, phenomenon, the, the, the evidence of what's happening in your life. Do I see love? Do I see repentant attitude? Do I see service? Do I see a love for the Lord, love for the brothers? Two of those soils, there was, there was life, right? It sprouted, it came to life, but what happened? The cares of the world, the worries, choked it out, drowned it out. There was no fruit. There was no evidence of that life. That's, that's the true believer comparison. Yes, bro, I'm sorry. Right, right. 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 It's it's a lifelong relational process. If if the relationship is with the Father and abiding in the Lord, there will be fruit born. There will be evidences. It it may not be much at first. I mean that's you remember the yardstick in our sanctification? But there will be evidences of it. We will see that. We will share in that. And that's what we're to encourage one another in. Boy, I got a lot of hands today. It's great. <laughs> I'm thinking that the end me is also conveying some type of like idea of perfection. So mm-hmm. those who are saying that they're in him, much like in Matthew 7, where they're going to say, you did all these things that's in your name. And you can say, I never knew you. So in the metaphorical language of the picture that he's giving here of the vine and the branches, I think it's this picture of like you're saying you're in me if you're in me you're going to truly do these things right if you're not doing these things then you're never really in me and you'll be cast out in those things exactly very very foundational simple but profound truths that we yes brother oh yeah you good you sure okay right yeah, in a in a symbolic nature of the nation of Israel, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, they they should have been flourishing. That knowing the scriptures, they should have. Oh, this is the Messiah. But all they were doing was bearing leaves and no fruit. Yeah. Yeah. The husbandman, the father. Exactly. That's. In that is love. That is the love. The discipline that we receive from our earthly fathers, maybe, maybe not, but the discipline that we will receive from our heavenly father if we abide in him, 
the light of the truth of his word is going to examine us. You know, Psalm 139. Let, let it examine us. Lord, I want to be transparent. My abiding in you means I'm going to, you know, as Thomas Brooks said, I'm going to unbosom my heart so that you can examine it because I don't want anything evil before you coming from me in your presence. That This is what we're going to see in a minute, Lord willing, is, is the joy in this. This is what Christ wants in us. The joy of obedience, of holiness, of abiding in him is greater than any temporal joy this world can offer. Do we, do we want to embrace and live and know that? That's, that's the question. That's the proving of our abiding. So, any, anybody else? This is good. Right. Uh, yeah, Hebrews six uh, four through six, uh, and I think like discussing this really helps shed light on this Hebrews six passage. Exactly, coming and tasting of the things of the Spirit and enjoying the fellowship and hearing the Word. I mean, Christians are great people to be around, but if that's the extent of it, if it's not Christ that we're after, then it is going to be temporal. We're going to be broken off and burned. You know, that, that, that is talking about predominantly the end judgment, but it can happen in this life. I mean, I, Peggy and I know of a, of a man who was pastor of a church and false teaching. One day in his Corvette, decapitated by a dump truck, gone. You know, so praise God, many of those people were rescued from that situation. But yes. Right. Yeah. Young folks, it is very dangerous for you to sit here and hear the gospel of Christ and not respond to it by faith. Adults, <laughs> it is a very dangerous. Yeah, I'm, I'm being all inclusive here. So a, a false solution in all of this. For example, to, to this metaphor is that the person who bears no fruit is cast off and burned as a branch, but not as a believer. That's a false interpretation. Okay, I don't know if I twisted that to confuse you, but we we, we need to re- begin to understand this metaphor and resolve this issue. Is is to have the sound theology of conversion. This is what it's getting at: the good soil. Not a, not it's not that a person makes a decision and says, "Okay, that's it. I'm good." I've made a decision, I'm a Christian, I'm going to church, I'm doing all that's necessary. The biblical evidence we read and know is that a person who has faith in Christ has indeed come to experience the new birth. So like what Brian was talking about, like the two and the not-so-good soils. There was life. There there was what was seen and, and presumed to be evidence of a new birth, that they had received Christ, they put their faith in Christ. But is there a fundamental and progressive, key words, change in a person's life, words and deeds. What I said, phenomenological versus ontological. Outward evidences of fruit versus just their state of being, what they consider themselves to be. I'm good, I'm Christian, no worries. I'm, I'm got my ticket, you know. No, there's not a slow train coming. But anyway, sorry, just a song came to mind. Only God knows the heart, and we are able, only able to assess words and deeds. Is there fruit or is there not fruit? Can, can you see, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, he's addressing the disciples, right? Do you see the church, purpose, function, reality? We're not here to go, I don't see any fruit, but brother, man, what's, man, what's going on? You know, you, you've professed Christ, and, and yet I see these things in your life. That's Matthew 18, going to your brother and saying, man, what's happening in your life? What's going on? I don't see that. And and the alternate of that is, man, praise God, I see your love for the Lord, man. What You know, share it. What's going on? You know, so to share in the joy of the fruit or to come alongside and find out, man, what, what's happening? You know, you've been professing this, but it's just constant down, down, down. So, as I talked about, 
all the, the parables of the, so, uh, the soils, parable of the sower. You know, e- even John, he talks about later in his epistle to, in 1 John 2.19 about those antichrists that, that left the church and their apostasy later proved out that they were not true believers. Um, Cecilia, John 2, um, 23 to 25 talks about that a person can put their trust in Christ and not be a true believer. Judas, you know, accepted by the 12, did the miracles, all that. And, and I think, too, Luke eight eighteen gives us insight into not only Judas, but also our fruitfulness or lack thereof. Christ says, so take care how you listen. Be very considerate or concerned about how you listen to things. Whoever has, what happens? To him more is given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Are we listening to Christ? Are we bearing fruit? Or are we listening to ourselves saying, I'm, I'm good, I'm okay, I don't, I don't need that. True faith is a lasting faith. It, it will hold on till the end. That's, that's a promise in Scripture. We have to come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at the first, Hebrews 3.14. These, these are very sobering, very somber thoughts, things we need to wrestle with, but, but these serve to emphasize the, the, really the thrust of Jesus' argument here that any true believer is responsible for remaining in Jesus' love. And we accomplish this by means of obeying him. Yes, brother. He quit reading my notes, man. That, that is, seriously, that's my next sentence. This is not suggesting perfect obedience. Only, who, who, who only accomplished this for us? Christ. Man, we can embrace that. We can live in that. I know my imperfect, just what I read in that prayer. Yes. I, amen. Amen. Well, I told him what I was going to teach on, so he's been reading it. I didn't give him my notes, though. I, he's not getting paid, I promise you. <laughs> but just just like you said, we're all in need of still being trimmed, of pruned, of fashioned. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a vineyard and see how the, the vine itself is hideous. I mean, it, it really speaks of Christ out of Isaiah. He was so comely. He was not pretty at all. But to see those beautiful branches trimmed and those grape clusters, man, they are appealing. You want to just grab and eat it's, it's wonderful to see god's creation that way such a, such a such typology there but and this continues until the lord takes us home or until he returns this is not next five minutes next five days next five years it's a lifelong glorious process that we get to share in but we need to realize that just in and of ourselves we are not wise enough we're not even committed enough to keep ourselves. And in realizing this, it's only when we realize this and strive to keep ourselves in Jesus' love that we understand and realize he's the one keeping us. He's the one protecting us by, as Peter talks about, keeping us by his power. Um, I mean, this is Philippians two twelve and 13 we went to. God began the work. He's going to continue it. He, but we have to work out our, fear, our salvation in what? Fear and trembling. We are still in need of pruning and, 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 and perfecting until God, Christ's glory is returned. But we tremble before God because we can't do it ourselves. We need his gracious help. Okay, but the fire of the theme here that I pray will burn into our hearts and minds is that as Jesus remains in his Father's love by means of obedience, it is exactly the same for us. We must remain in Jesus' love by means of obedience. And this abiding, this remaining in the vine, the true vine, this is where intimacy is found, with Christ. And, and, and ongoing failure in this will call into question the validity of our, of our profession of faith, of our commitment to Christ.
It means, just like Paul said, we need to examine ourselves, see if we're in the faith. Not doubting Christ, not doubting his gospel, not doubting his power, but am I, am I truly abiding by faith in Christ, seeking him out? Am I hungry for him? Am I pursuing him and confessing my sins, seeking his blood to cleanse me, seeking the grace and the, the spirit of God to enable me, to guide me, to grow me in him? so that my heart is filled with both his joys we're going to see and his love, and that, that spills over onto the body to the glory of God. You know, not to look at me, but to the glory of God. So we must be careful not to think that this responsibility to remain in Jesus' love can sound so severe or so stark or so humorless or joyless that it evokes in us some fearful, frenzied compliance that if we step out of bounds one iota, we're going to be broken off and, and thrown into the fire. But it's in love and it's joy, and this is the third element we're going to get to. Wow. Um, let me start it. I want, to, I want to give you this to think about. John fifteen eleven. he continues, These things, all of this Christ has spoken to us, so that my joy may be in you. Abiding in me, obeying me, you will have my joy. You will know joy. Your joy will also be made full. And he continues this command with a promise. From the parallel that's already been, already been drawn concerning his obedience to the Father and our obedience to him, we now can and are called to understand that the Lord's supreme joy is found in this relationship of obedience to the Father. So it is with us. Our supreme joy, our greatest delight, what we have to, just as in the book we read, fight for joy in this and pursue this relationship with Christ is found in obedience to him. There was no greater joy for Christ in this and to do the Father's will. It was his greatest delight. This is why he speaks these truths of obedience to us. So that just as Christ's love for his father was so profound and so unwavering that he wants to please him, that pleasing him was the greatest joy and satisfaction that he knew here on the earth, he wants us to share in that too. He's not being stingy here at all. This is the greatest heartfelt satisfaction we can know in this world. And it, it, it requires a lot of dying, doesn't it? The obedience of Christ is one of the central Christological realities that John talks about in his gospel. And it serves as the supreme paradigm, the example for the obedience we owe to him. And Jesus very much wants this same joy to be shared by us. This is a deeply rooted promise for us that we can, we can, we will drink so deep of his joy if we obey him every new day. Not, not some mere cheap glow that depends on outward circumstances. Not just when things are going well. You find out you have cancer. You lose a family member. You lose your job. You know, whatever it may happen in this life, this joy will supersede that. It will go beyond any profound delight that this world attempts to delude you with. And it's found when we obey with unreserved commitment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that just as, as, as we should, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, which carries in that command a, both a, a conquering metaphor of Christ's authority of his supremacy and kingship, but a joyful submission, submitting of our minds to his commands to rest in the mind of Christ. How have we been, or how have we, when delighting in the law of God, thinking of Psalms 1, Psalm 1, have experienced this very sublime gladness of wholehearted obedience? Has it not been a true joy to know true peace? Father, thank you for the grace in that midst of temptation that I could obey you and, and be holy because Christ is holy because of his righteousness and 
not in my perfection, but in your perfection, and I can walk in this. Have we, have we experienced these true deep joy springs of life when there's when they're unreserved commitment to his commands to, to obey him? Don't we all know the misery when we hedge our obedience where we, we don't even love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures and we don't love Christ enough to relish and thrive in his holiness? We, we cannot, we dare not be or remain ambivalent, but look again to the cross, always keeping the cross before us because that is the supreme measure of obedience that was endured with joy, always set before our Lord and Savior. And, and Christ desires for us and has promised for us this true and deep soul-satisfying joy of a fruitful life through obedience to him, to his Father, to his Word, to the Spirit of God, Will we pursue this intimacy and strive to remain in his love? And please realize this, this list of, of parallels is not exhaustive, and, and neither are they endless. Jesus Christ alone is purely, truly unique, perfectly God, perfectly man, and he alone is the true vine. But we are called as branches to abide in satisfying obedience with the great joy of Christ to the glory of God. And praise the Lord, we finished the first Roman numeral. What was A again? I'm sorry? Yeah, they're, they're kind of long. I can send them to you if you like. I, I need to write them up there. I'm sorry. Basically, the love God had for the Son is the same love that the Son has for the disciples. Right. Yep, for us. Personalize it, bro. Personalize it. If you're in Christ, man, it's that same love, that eternal, endless love. Any final thoughts? Lord willing, we will. The, the, the other four aren't as exhaustive. Well, no, this one gets into it. The last three aren't as exhaustive. But So, Lord willing, another week or two. Thank you.